Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to episode number 292 of the Peristyle Podcast. Today is October 28th, almost Halloween, 2013. Got a big show for you this week on the podcast. USC, despite playing 10 walk-ons, beats Utah 19-3 uh, to in the Coliseum. We're going to talk about that with uh, Dan Weber in the first segment. And I'm going to do a little solo action in the last uh, segment of the podcast. Coach Harvey Hyde is on uh, secret assignment. If you have any questions or comments for us, you can always drop us an email, podcast at uscfootball.com, or call 206-888-6755. Leave a voicemail there, or go to peristylepodcast.com, and you can leave a voicemail right on our webpage. Let's get into it with uh, Dan Weber. What's going on, Dan? How you doing? Uh, pretty good. Short week. Uh, I guess we have to talk fast here. I'm not going to have as much time as week. <laughs> Short week meaning Friday is USC will be playing at Oregon State. So got a little bit of momentum uh, after the game, you know, against Utah. But it was, it's, uh, we talk off air, it's, it's tough to turn around and then go to uh, a place like Corvallis and play with, uh, with a short week. Although, you know, with this team facing what they've faced in the last month or so, uh, maybe that's the best way. Maybe it's just, you know, let's go on to the next challenge, you know, and see who's ready to go. And, uh, Let's go get them. So maybe uh, just, you know, one after another. And uh, uh, it is, I think, there's a slight unfairness with the, um, if, if two teams uh, are going to get a short week and both of them been home the week before, uh, as USC and Oregon State were, the team that has to travel on a short week, you know, be basically lose a day. And uh, you can't really afford to lose a day when you've already lost one day. Uh, Although, you know, in USC's case, this might be, you know, the way you don't, uh, you don't go quite as hard at practice. You uh, put all your effort and focus into showing up, uh, you know, Friday in Corvallis, something that USC teams in how many years haven't focused on showing up in Corvallis. Now this is a big deal for this USC team. Uh, so uh, maybe it'll turn things around. Maybe it'll be the kind of, you know, work the opposite way. Uh, it's a challenge, and uh, and they know it. And uh, I think, you know, based on, uh, I don't, you know, I don't think they showed any signs of packing it in, you know, checking out, whatever uh, Saturday. And uh, I think that bodes well for you know this Friday. Um, well, before we get into this Friday, we you know, we obviously talked about that a little bit, but we wanted to. Talk about what happened on Saturday with uh, between USC and Utah. Utah certainly a dangerous team that uh, that already beat Stanford this year. Uh, were you surprised at kind of what happened out there? I wasn't really sure what to expect, and a lot of people were like, "Wow, USC killed them!" And they, they seemed kind of shocked. Well, I, I was. I thought they had nothing but good practices. Now, it doesn't always mean anything, and sometimes doesn't mean any doesn't mean anything. It just looked like it looked like a college football team that was you know every day having fun going hard, and not feeling sorry for themselves. 
I thought, I thought Ed did a wonderful job of, uh, you know, coming out, for example, and he's going to give injury information, but he said things like, I'm only going to do it once, boom, and he's moving past it. And uh, I thought it helped the kids. I thought, the, uh, yeah, I thought we were going to see more walk-ons and get more playing time. You know, guys stepped up that uh, Nelson Aguilar showed up at the Coliseum and said, you know, I'm going to go. Uh, Darius Rogers just keeps playing on that ankle and doing whatever they need him to do. Uh, it was, uh, you know, then they lose uh, Kevin Graff. So they're down, you know, they were down going into the game. They're down one more guy. And the thing they didn't want to do is start shuffling on the offensive line. And then they've got to, you know, shuffle three positions. Uh, I don't think we thought, you know, Trey Mann was talking to his, his you know, after the game, uh, catching up with people close to Trey, and they were surprised that he got, you know, he got to carry the ball that much, and I think he gutted it out. Uh, a pretty uh, pretty impressive effort. Uh, you know, you got two walk-on tight ends for Shane Sullivan, you know, tears up his ACL. So he'll be out for the year. Uh and Chris Wilson gets a start. He's a kid that was a pitcher at Wake Forest and a ex-quarterback uh, who ends up starting a tight end for USC. It's just uh, you know, it's crazy, as he said. It was just beyond belief that if you'd have told him two months ago, he'd not only be starting a tight end for USC, he'd catch a pass. He just laughed and said, it's just, it's just it's nuts. There's no way. You know, it's fantasy. And it, it's not anymore. So uh, who knows? Maybe winning a game in uh, – and Corvallis won't be fantasy anymore. I don't know. Crazier things have happened. <laughs> that is true. Uh, well, let's. I want to get to some questions we have about the game and then kind of about the team in general. There'll be some coaching stuff too. But we'll start off with uh, Jesse in Olympia, Washington. What's the issue with the second half adjustments? Doesn't seem like uh, it. Doesn't seem like we change what we do once it gets shut down. Secondly. Uh, why are we so determined to run from a shotgun set? It's very apparent that it wasn't working, and we keep trying to do it. And lastly, don't understand why the coaches didn't stick with Trey Madden because it looked like he was the most successful running back on Saturday. So three different points there. I think Trey clearly probably played more plays than anybody expected him to. So I, I think they were, and rightly so, thinking, uh, why should we, uh, you know, push him past where his hamstring can take him on this game. Let's keep him ready to go for the rest of the year. And, you know, uh, uh, Silas Red and Buck Allen have had, had you know, pretty good, uh, you know, results this year. So, so I'm not, uh, you know, I was surprised they, they used Trey as much as they did. So, I, you know, I don't, don't think that's – I, I wouldn't second-guess anybody over that. Uh, second part, uh, on the shotgun, I just think, you know, it's – uh, it's better, you know. They block it better for for Cody. He gets a little better look. Uh, can throw those, uh, you know, slants and some of those things. So, uh, you know, this is a team that hasn't run the ball out of the shotgun a lot, and it hasn't, you know, had that kind of read option look. Uh, so, uh, you know, I just think it, it gives them a little bit of, of an advantage in in, uh, in the short passing game, uh, which. Uh, which I think they, you know, they took advantage of uh, eventually, especially on the, the slants and some of the crossing stuff. So I think that's a trade-off they maybe have to make. Uh, and uh, you're going to have to remind me of the third question. Oh, um, the, yeah, it was uh, the second half adjustments. Well, I think, 
you know, both games, they've really played well defensively, uh, the last two games, for example. Um, and uh, I just think they, they've decided, you know, we're going to try to win this with our defense and not lose it with the offense. Uh, and I can absolutely see uh, at the Utah game, at Notre Dame, they hit a, uh, they ran into a bad uh, bad play calling kind of stretch there, and uh, I think they weren't sure. Uh, again, I think one of the, the really the, the thing at Notre Dame, the play calling uh, and the offensive kind of you know halt wouldn't have looked nearly as bad if you take away those holding calls. Uh, I'm thinking, add 200 yards of offense in the Notre Dame game say the hundred that they lost on, you know, on the penalties and the hundred or so that they lost on the plays that they ran that got called back because of the penalties. And uh, you put that on there and their actually offense, I think, looks pretty good and their, their play calling looks looks pretty decent and their, you know, offensive adjustment doesn't look look as bad as it did because of the fact that they kept shooting themselves in the foot. So, uh, so I, I, I would, you know, I just think they're going to try to, if they've got a really good defensive game going, which they did, they knew, for example, Notre Dame, they knew probably Notre Dame was not going to score again. So I think, you know, they're trying to get the one score. You know, and if, if uh, you don't have a hold on Cody's scramble to the three-yard line, I, you know, they win that game. And that would have looked like genius strategy. So, you know, they didn't want to throw a pick six. Uh, is it a little conservative? Yeah, a little bit conservative. Uh, they, you know, uh, Marquise Lee went out. So you've got a, you know, first half where you've already thrown him a touchdown pass that, that's dropped, and now he's out of the game. And that's going to cause you some adjustment some adjustment issues. Uh, Justin Davis then went out of the game. Uh, that's going to cause you some adjustment issues. So I'm not sure. I think there were, you know, in the previous regime, maybe some serious halftime adjustment, uh, you know, negative uh you know, consequences of, of maybe not realizing what happened in the first half and, and where you needed to go. But I'm not going to hang that on, on these guys uh, right now. I think there are other things going on than just the inability to make adjustments at halftime. All right. Uh, let's go. Melvin had a question about Kevon Seymour. Do you think he can handle the Pac-12 receivers? I ask because I noticed that uh, Strong from Arizona State and Jones from Notre Dame literally took the ball away from him. Uh and scored touchdowns. So what what do you think about Kevon Seymour as a cornerback, Dan? I thought he looked awfully good the other day. I, I thought, you know, he looks like he's coming of age. I think he's getting better. That's what you would expect. Uh, uh, I thought they were very pleased with him. Uh, the combination of Kevon and, and Josh Shaw, I thought, uh, you know, it didn't look like anybody was going to take the ball away from him, uh, uh, you know, Saturday. And, now we'll find out you know, this week, uh, you know what, you know where where his growth has been. But uh, but I wouldn't be so backward looking uh, with some of the young guys. Uh, you know, if you've been around for a few years, and uh, um, you know you might be able to say, okay, you've established exactly who you are and how you're going to play the ball and all that. But I'm not sure I would would do that with Kevon. Um, and even with the you know the experienced guys who had the best game, now they're saying. Looking at the film, they think Demetrius Wright, who got back into his starting role, mostly because they had to move Josh Shaw to corner, so that gets Demetrius uh, right back on the field. They thought he had a you know terrific game at safety. So, you know, I think it's sometimes we uh, we tend to 
you know, categorize these guys because of, you know, previous games. And as they say with secondary guys, you've got to have a short memory. <laughs> you just got to let that last play go and go on to the next play. And same thing, I think, maybe with us fans or you fans, uh, all of us observers of the game, uh, you kind of got to, you know, let it go for a while and not think, you know, I keep, you know, thinking about it for a while. There does come a time, though, when I think, you know, you're – your track record is who you are. And uh, so, that, you know, finding that sweet spot in terms of when that is the case is what coaching's all about. It's probably hurt USC a couple of times this year when they weren't willing to say, you know, we got to do something different, uh, especially in the secondary. And don't know if they can even do that. The other place, you know, where that's become an issue is the offensive line. Don't even know if they can consider doing that uh, this week. All they all they're going to be able to do is probably get the five guys they hope will be able to, you know, start and finish the game in the five positions. They hope they can start them and finish them in the game. But uh, uh, I think, you know, I think they're I think Kevon. I'm pretty encouraged by Kevon Saturday. All right, uh, let's move on. Let's see. VA had a question. Is there any focus by the coaches on the fact that USC has historically been, arguably, the slowest team to get the ball snapped of any team I've ever seen? Why is there still this decades-old issue of getting plays in and getting to the line? Well, it's a little better. It's definitely picked up a little bit. There's not quite the angst over what's the next play. Uh, they still used up a couple of timeouts getting into the right play. Uh, they don't quite seem to, you know... Uh, you know, just kind of worry quite as much about, you know, coming up with that exactly perfect play, let's run the play and, and then go to the next play. They're doing a better job. Uh, part of that was because of numbers, and they, uh, you know, didn't feel like they had the numbers. Uh, and, you know, when you're down to no tight ends, no scholarship tight ends, and one, you know, fully healthy scholarship wide receiver is really pretty hard Uh to run a kind of a hurry up. I, I'd love to see him run, you know, more plays and run a hurry up attack. But, uh, and say three of your six running backs are gone. Uh, there's not much you can do, I think. And you've got either one deep in the offensive line. Probably you need to, you know, as much as we didn't want to see that happen, what they need to do is run run the plays perfectly not not run a lot of them right now, you know. When just just having Marquise Lee changes things a little bit, but uh, when you're playing without without you know the guy coming back and you know in the country who's the best receiver, as much as they have, that's just you know then you, you're not thinking about out talenting the other team necessarily. You're not thinking about you know well the more opportunities we get, the better off we are. I think I think the equation has changed at this point, and and now. You know, if the defense steps up again, as it has, it keeps stepping up, and they don't get the breakdowns in the secondary where they can really get torn apart as they did in a you know, couple of games they lost, uh, then you're going to probably say you're going to try to play, you know, real smart, real solid football and offense and uh, let our defense win the game for us. And uh, that's what they did Saturday. Uh, all right, let's go to Ira. He's from the class, USC class of 1980. Thanks for writing in, Ira. So with all the media saying the same things about what the offense needs to do to get athletes on the field, use running backs, 
in the passing attack, send the tight ends up the middle, why do the coaches continue to only attack with two wide receivers and put no pressure on opposing defenses? Why not use a running back as a slot receiver? That's again from Ira. Yeah, I mean, I think some of it is uh, just the, the amount of time that they, you know, that they've got. I, I think they've got they're caught in the in the middle, say with uh, with Buck Allen. Uh, last week, most of the week, they had just two uh, running backs in practice. So, how much of that time? You know, do you give to Buck to get him, uh, you know, accustomed to playing uh, in the slot? I mean, I think that was some of the thought. But then when you don't have Justin Davis, you don't have Ty Isaac, you've lost T.J. Morgan for the year, uh, Trey Madden really can't practice. So you now you're down to Silas, who just came back, and Buck. So do you take some of that time and put Buck, you know, as a, uh, as a slot receiver? It's not an easy call. I mean, I was you know, one of the first ones that you know, was uh, campaigning to get Buck as a slot receiver because I think his yards after catch, if you could get him the ball you know, against a linebacker, uh, get him against a little cornerback he could run right over or whatever, um, I'd love to see that. But, uh, but I'm not sure, as a, you know, just a former high school football coach, I'm not sure how you have enough time to do those things if uh, – if, you're, if your running back's number is also down the way your tight ends and your, your wide receivers are, that combination, putting them all together, um, you know, at, at those three skill positions makes that kind of transition a little more difficult. So I don't, I don't put that on anybody's not wanting to do it. I think it's uh, more looking at it and saying, man, do we have enough time to, uh, to get this done? I mean, Buck basically did an awful lot of, you know, carrying the ball, and I think they didn't know uh, if Madden, if Trey was going to be able to carry the ball at all or not Saturday. So then Trey does come through, carries the ball. They don't get to use Buck as much there, and uh, you know then you can look back and say, "Gosh, you wish you'd have had him at uh, uh, had him more, maybe a slot receiver." But some of those things are aren't knowable as you're going through practice, and you're just you're just doing the best you can. Uh, not really knowing who's going to show up Saturday. I mean, they really didn't know who was going to show up uh, Saturday. Uh, you know, I would say Nelson and, and Trey for sure were guys you wouldn't have been able to predict on Thursday, you know, what they were going to do Saturday. So, you know, that changes things. So, so I think that's a hard – I wouldn't um, I wouldn't do much second-guessing there. I think they're, they're open uh, the way the coaching staff is now. They're open to things like that wouldn't hesitate to do it it's just uh you know does it make sense for them knowing where they are personnel wise uh speaking of running backs percy had a question he said if most of the running backs are injured why wouldn't ty isaac get more carries he looks the part and it may behoove the staff to start a, uh to shift to the running game since the line can't pass block well and we don't even know what what his deal was ty was not there almost any day in practice. I mean, he, he would show up with the rehab guys. Didn't, it was, wasn't obvious what, you know, we were guessing is it, you know, was he sick? And uh, for some reason, nobody ever figured, found out or figured out what it was. But uh, he barely got to practice last week. So uh, had he been able to practice? But uh, basically they were, with, they were two running backs last week. So I, I don't disagree with you. I think they would have loved to uh, be able to get him in get him in more, but uh, 
he just, for whatever reason, was another one of those guys who wasn't, wasn't there at practice. All right, uh, let's go. Martin had a question. He actually wrote this in after the Notre Dame game. We didn't. Uh, we kind of did a, did a different show last week, but I, I thought it was interesting and maybe get your thoughts on this. He said, at the start of the season, USC ran a 5-2 defense that was attacking the quarterback, and now it's more of a 2-4-5 defense that's always in a nickel package. Is that because no one in the secondary can go man coverage and needs to be in more of a zone coverage to try to not give up the big play? Average quarterbacks are ripping up the secondary because they're not getting much time in the pocket because they're getting too much time in the pocket to find an open man. That's Martin. Well, I think, uh, you know, it's evolving. I think they always had the idea that they were going to go uh, with the nickel package and, and hopefully with pressure and sacks and, and other things, force teams to be in third and long so that they, you know, or second and long so that they could use the nickel package. So I think the nickel package was always – a big part of where they were going. Um, I just think, uh, you know, they were able to uh, to go with their standard uh, earlier in the year against the teams they played, you know, against Hawaii and Boston College and uh, teams like that. They could have, you know, more of an opportunity to, you know, to, to not worry about multiple receivers and things like that. I'm not sure it was the inability to go man-to-man. Uh, I just think that that's how the – the season, you know, developed when you looked at the schedule, and then as they get into more, you know, Pac, Pac-12 and more Arizonas and Utahs and uh, obviously Oregon States, uh, you're going to go the other way. But I don't think it, I don't think it, you know, says all that much about, uh, uh, you know, the, what they can't do. It's just this is the best matchup, you know, that they think, uh, uh, and they, they they did get a lot of pressure on Utah. Uh, I think they were disappointed they couldn't get get enough pressure, uh, you know, on Notre Dame. Uh, uh, obviously, it was a you know weird game when Notre Dame loses their quarterback. But early, they didn't get enough pressure on Tommy Reese and, uh, you know, gave him a chance to, to make a couple of throws that uh, got Notre Dame their two, um, first two scores, and then that was it. But, uh, but I think this is, the, this is the direction they were going all along uh, and with the sense of we're going to play a lot of nickel and uh, with the idea originally Sua, you know, Cravens was going to be the nickel guy. And then they've, you know, moved all kinds of personnel around. But, uh, but I don't think this is not unintended. This is, this is where they were going. It'll be a real test this weekend. I mean, I I think the defense has turned around the last couple of games, uh, but you know, you're talking about a hobbled quarterback and then a completely injured and out quarterback. So, Mannion's neither one of those things. He's going to be, you know, fully healthy. He's going to be slinging the ball over the field. So this is really going to be a, a tough test for this defense. Is it going to look like it did uh, in Tempe, or is it going to look like it did you know, the last couple of weeks? I'm really curious to see. And they have a wide receiver who's playing the way Marcus played, Marquise played last year uh, in this in Brandon Cooks. I mean, he is really, really, really good. And uh, – It'd be interesting to see, you know, what, you know, they've obviously got to get to Mannion. There's no question about it. This is not even a thought of uh, what do you have to do here. You've got to get to Mannion and not let, him, not let him have enough time to throw the ball deep. If he wants to keep throwing it underneath and they throw a lot of, you know, you got every screen in the book, uh, then just tackle well. But uh, don't let him throw, throw the ball deep on you. Don't let him beat you deep and get an easy, uh, easy score, I think, is, it's got to be their game plan, and uh, and we'll see. I mean, 
Josh wants him throwing, you know, to him. I love the idea where Josh said, you know, take it personally. And they made him ante up ten bucks if you gave, you know, gave up a catch in front of you, and um, said uh, uh, they're not going to throw it to my side. Just told the coaches, forget, you know, don't worry about my side. They're not throwing the ball over here. I just think that that becomes a little contagious. I mean, I thought, you know, one of the problems with moving Josh to the corner is he can't become, he can't stay kind of the, in the middle of the leader, the quarterback of the defense, but he figured out a way to do it. He did it in the film room. He did it, you know, before the game. He did it on the sideline. The guy's a invaluable uh, member of that defense, the way he uh, works at keeping those guys in there. And I think he's doing an awful lot by, uh, by example, the way he's playing corner. Where would this team be without him transferring from Florida? That's crazy oh to my think gosh. about. So you can't even think about it. You know, how many <laughs> positions, and uh, he is – He's such a such a leader on that field, and, and by every way you can be a leader. Uh, and again, that's probably some of the things the USC just absolutely had to happen is is leaders step up, maybe that hadn't been in a position to be that kind of leader, you know, before. And guys who lead by example and just say, "This is, you know, follow me." I'll tell you what, one of those guys that's doing that is Darius Rogers. The way he's practicing with that plastic brace on his ankle, and he's out there, you know, catching punts and kickoffs and uh, running first on, you know, almost every drill they do. And, uh, you know, an ankle hasn't gotten a whole lot better, but uh, he's out there. You know, he's the guy they went to, you know, on the on the toughest play of the game where they needed that fourth and four. They get the score, you know, they get a six-yard completion as he, you know, catches the ball safely right past the sticks, and then they go. They go down and score the only touchdown of the game, the you know game-winning touchdown in, in, in effect, and uh, and they did it behind uh, uh, a freshman who just can't. You cannot say enough good things about what Darius Rogers is doing uh, right now. Um, Terry wrote in. I think this was actually after the uh, Notre Dame game as well, and maybe you can comment on why this happened. But he said, "What are the coaches? What are the coaching techniques that should be used to fix excess amount of penalties?" and Obviously, USC turned that around uh, against Utah. Well, I think uh, knowing your assignment and not being late, not getting there late, I think a lot. A lot of that was getting there late. I think they got a little tired second half against uh, a really physical, strong defensive line. I mean, Notre Dame got one thing going. I mean, I walked off the field next to the Knicks kid, and he's just a load. I mean, he's so big, and – you could just see they probably got, you know, a little bit. They didn't get to their, you know, edge and didn't get to the angle, and they were getting there just a little bit late and, uh, you know, extended those arms. And uh, it was, you know, a combination of, of wanting to do it but not quite getting there in time to do it and not being smart enough to know that if you're six foot six and 308 pounds, and you're, there's nobody else near you for, you know, five yards in every direction, and the referee's looking right at you, you probably better not put your arms out. Uh, and, and, you know, if, you know, if you're right at the edge where the uh, ball carrier is on the Cody Custis scramble, there are just times you just have to say, I'm just going to try to screen the guy. I'm just going to try to be in the way, but I'm going to make it obvious I'm not using my hands. Uh, 
And, you know, I think in that play, I think you still make the block if you get your body and, and just do a screen. And, uh, you know, that would have been a tough tackle. Uh, you know, basically you had, a, a, you know, one defender, one, you know, offensive lineman and Cody. And if all you can do is just uh, just screen him out. But you can't, you know, don't try to grab him when, you know, the whole world's looking. Maybe you didn't. You know, you thought you didn't, but it's enough to, you know, that was the ball game. Uh, and that's where you just got to get smarter. If you're, you know, if you're going to be a little late to the play, you just got to say, I'm not taking the penalty on top of everything else. The guy might miss the tackle. You know, be smart. Anyway, that's my – I think <laughs> they really worked out on, on being smarter this week. Earl, yeah. Earl had a – Being tougher is good, but be smart too. Be smarter too. Earl had a question on that. when He said, like, Kessler goes out of the pocket. Uh, Andre Walker would extend his arms, and, and then he's holding. He saw it happen twice, but he wondered – how does the offensive lineman prevent that from happening when he can't see which direction the quarterback is moving? Well, I think that's where you you have to just have a sense of uh, you know a sense of the game and where it's going behind you. And for example, you have to pick a side. Then you have to go one way or the other, and you have to hope that the quarterback is reading you. I mean, for example, the guy with the ball is behind you, and you're not sure which way he's going. Give him one way to go. So, you know, get an angle on that defender one way or the other. And you give the ball carrier the opportunity to cut off you as opposed to, you know, waiting to see what he's going to do. You give him a chance. You know, you get there. If you, okay, you're there late. So then you got to take him inside out. You're, you're going to get him from the inside. Then you give your, you give your uh, ball carrier a chance to cut behind you and cut up. If you're already convinced he's going to get outside of you on that play, I think all you can do is just extend your body, not your hands, not your arms. Try to just, you know, as, you know in basketball, you know, uh, run a pick. But uh, don't give them something. And let's face it, it was the Pac-12 officiating crew. What are they going to do? They're going to throw a flag on USC if they can. Don't give them the chance. Why they do that, I don't know. But uh, it seemed like they were almost nervous if they went to play without, you know, throwing something on USC. <laughs> it's just the way life is, and it's always been that way, you know, for my 12 years covering them. Uh, it, there's something about USC and, and the Pac-12 officials. Some of those calls, had it been the opposite, had it been same exact play with the ACC officials that Notre Dame's using now on the road, and Notre Dame did the same thing. They wouldn't have called a couple of those for sure. They, they were they were out of control. But again, what else is new? They're just not very good, and they're not very professional. And they seem always to be nervous. You know that oh, am I going to get this call wrong? Or uh, what if I don't call this call? Oh, I mean USC. I mean uh, Pac-12 officials. The thing you notice is they're just not big enough for the big games. When you look around and you try to say, well, you know, you know, we, you know I mean, after covering the SEC and the Big Ten and going to officials meetings and what have you, those conferences had big-time guys who could handle big-time games. Now, there may be a case where they made sure that the big-time teams didn't get, you know, the short end of the stick, 
that those guys were in charge and they knew what they were doing. You don't get that sense. When you're in a Pac-12 game, you get the feeling the game is bigger than the guys trying to call the game. I don't know why, but it's been that way. It's just you don't have the sense of there's strong people out there who have this under control. So got to take that into consideration. Don't give them a chance to make a mistake at your expense. Um, all right. Well, that we had also had a voicemail question about uh, Ed Orgeron, so I want to play this one for you. Here you go. JD from DC calling. Question probably for uh, Dan Weber. Dan, I'd like to play devil's advocate here and put you in Pat Hayden's position. Uh, if uh, Eddie O goes the rest of the season losing only to Stanford and playing respectively, it seems to me it's a very hard proposition to switch horses in midstream, so to speak. He's putting together a very strong class, uh, even under this uncertainty. He gets a contract extension for you know at least another year or two while we're still under sanctions, and he tweaks the uh, coaching staff in some obvious redundant ways without naming names. Uh, seems to me I'm, I'm very hard-pressed to come up with another name in the college ranks uh, who makes more sense than retaining him, at least for a year or two. Um, when you add on the fact that USC has this understandable reluctance to reach out to non-pro-style coaches, um, I think it makes the case even stronger. I'd like to know your opinion and whether you see anybody out there Who's real? Who's not only a slam dunk because there isn't one, obviously, but uh, who could make a stronger case than Ed Ogeron at that point? In other words, I don't think he has to run the table if the team continues to play the way it does now, with their injury-riddled roster, and he's putting together a strong recruiting class. Um, I think JD said it better than anybody could say it. I, I think he makes exactly the right case uh, that you know. I, I know it gets people excited, but, uh, uh, you know, to speculate, I mean, honest to God, I, I guess there are a hundred names been thrown out on the parasol. You just look at them and you just, you, you almost can't even comment on some of the names. You know, I mean, it's just, you can't even tell between the ones that are being thrown out because guys think the other names are so stupid or they really mean it. Uh, it's just, I don't think there are a lot of obvious guys who uh, I think the, you know, three or four just absolutely slam dunk obvious guys you can't get. And, and not because that's something bad about USC. It's just, you know, they're not gettable uh, at this point. Uh, you know, it would have been nice when USC, uh, if they would have wanted to emphasize basketball, if they could have hired John Wooden. They couldn't, you know. <laughs> he weren't going to hire him. He wasn't coming. Uh, so, uh, I'm not sure. For example, who will they hire who will be a better recruiter than Ed Orgeron? I don't know. Is there somebody? Who will they hire who will be uh, – the kids will want to play for more? I don't know. Who will they hire who, who gets USC any better than Ed Orgeron, who understands where the program's been, where it can go, where it shouldn't go, all of that than Ed Orgeron? I don't know. Uh, you put a lot of that together and see where this goes. I mean, this is really tough to do. I mean, there are so few people that have ever done this, uh, take over a team in the middle of the season, and especially a team with the double whammy of the injuries in the NCAA stuff and, uh, and had them, you know, 
do what just what they did Saturday. I mean, think about what we'd be talking about had they gotten one one break at uh, Notre Dame. I mean, you know, this is a team that who knows where they'd be going uh, at this point. So, uh, uh, and without that, you know, obvious, just perfect guys out there. Now, I'll throw this in, Ryan. Ryan knows we talked about this. And one guy who I think is going to look pretty good by the end of this, if he goes unbeaten, and especially if he gets into a BCS Bowl, is uh, is Tim DeRitter and, at Fresno. He's going to an attractive personality, a West Coast guy, you know, say a, you know, a Bosco guy, a L.A. guy, a former military guy, just a real upbeat sort of a guy. Um, I just think, you know, you might, to me, that may be the direction I might go. I'd really be so hesitant about NFL guys. Just so, at the end, I mean, just bringing a guy in and then telling him, you know, you got to chart every single phone call you make. What? Yeah, NCAA, you got to chart every phone call you make. Holy crap. I mean, I just think <laughs> the adjustment now for NFL guys is just, um, I mean, yeah, it's attractive, the USC job. It's reason, yeah, it's like the NFL coach in, in, in L.A., except it's 12 months a year, and it's really hard. I mean, you got to get so many things right to do college football. And uh, the USC's got to – they have some things they got to get squared away in this program. I mean, there would be people at places like Notre Dame and, uh, you know, Michigan and, and Florida and Texas A&M and Texas and what have you that would come in here and, and look at some of the issues once you get past the beautiful McKay Center and once you get past the, uh, you know, history and tradition and the fabulous recruiting areas and all that. There are some things that have to be changed and some things that have to be upgraded. And uh, in the slam dunk, uh, and I think there are guys out there that know that. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I think your point is really well made and really something that – and I, I, I don't know that they were thinking that way three or four weeks ago, but Ed has, has, has almost – he's had so few missteps. I think at this point, and as you say, you know, you might have a different looking coaching staff next year. If that's here, uh, you know, you, you still have to figure out where this is going. We don't know. I mean, we don't know uh, how, how you would look at this, this team until it finishes up the year in terms of where the coaching staff goes and all that, but who would know better than that? And, and the continuity in recruiting I think that's maybe overstated at times, and maybe it was an overvalued um, uh, consideration when they hired Lane. I think that was probably a big part of it. Not sure, you know, it should have been, but, um, you know, it was a factor, and it it probably has to be a factor, and I think right now it really has to be a factor. The second part of that is uh, the recruiting, I think, that really has to happen, and no one could do better than Ed, is to recruit current players who might be thinking about leaving, who have a year of eligibility left, who can't be replaced. According to the current NCAA uh, you know, penalty structure, can't be replaced, basically. Uh, they, I think that recruiting, no one could do better than Ed in terms of convincing guys not to take a flyer on uh, leaving school 
but come back and uh, and play another year. Now, you don't want to do that to a guy that really probably should leave, but for all those guys that you don't want them to leave early because it's probably not it's not good for them, and it certainly wouldn't be good for the program, I think Ed's in the best position of all uh, to do that. So uh, your case is well made, well stated, and not one I disagree with, right. uh, J.D., JD and DC, thanks for that question. And uh, thanks, Dan, for all the time. I know we went a little long, but uh, interesting stuff. And we'll uh, look forward to getting your report after Friday when USC goes to Corvallis. Yeah, happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> happy you Halloween. And, uh, Orange for- and black. I mean, there's no better place in the whole world to be, you know, on Halloween uh, weekend than orange and black uh, Corvallis. I mean, that's, <laughs> there's, that's, there's no other color there. And it's uh, it's Halloween every time you go to Corvallis, and then when you go there on Halloween, uh, you really know. Uh, you're, I mean, it, it always does nerve you a little bit to see all that orange and black at any time of year. Yeah. On, uh, on this weekend, you're going to be really tired of orange and black. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks again, Dan, and uh, everyone else will be back in uh, just a minute, coming back with more of the Peristyle Podcast. Fight on, Trojan fans. We're all very excited about this season. My name is Louis Tangay, and I'm the managing director of Circle Marketing. Like USC, Circle Marketing has a long track record of success. Ours hasn't been on the football field, though. We have been very successful in helping the small businesses of America get the kind of marketing strategy and support previously only affordable by large companies. For example, by going to circlemarketing.com, you can view our portfolio, read our case studies, and see how we were able to increase business by 90%, grow social media followings by 10 times what it was when we started, and how our websites and marketing strategies have helped our small businesses reach and exceed all of their marketing goals time and time again. So come visit circlemarketing.com today, read our case studies and testimonials, and see what we've done for other small businesses like yours. Then contact us and find out what we can do to help your small business too. Circle Marketing, the company that fights on for your small business. We are back here on the Peristyle Podcast. As we said, Coach Harvey Hyde on Secret Simon. We're actually going to have Coach Harvey Hyde on uh, probably on Tuesday on the podcast. We'll do a uh, our armchair quarterback podcast. Maybe do it a little bit differently, but we'll we'll bring him in. He's been traveling. He had to go to Las Vegas, so we couldn't really get him in uh, Monday morning, but we'll get him uh, Tuesday or Wednesday. We'll have a podcast up with Coach Harvey Hyde. So if you do have any questions for him, uh, specific ones for him, you can email those in, podcast at uscfootball.com. Or if you have any questions for uh, we're going to talk to Shane Foley. I'll see if I can run down Sean Salisbury, but we might not get him till next week. Um, but any uh, questions for former USC quarterbacks, you can send those in as well. Podcast at uscfootball.com. And we'll get into all of that. Uh, I liked what Dan had to say uh, about Coach Ed Orgeron uh, in the last segment, and I want to kind of piggyback on that a little bit. Um, we had Rundy right in. He said, first of all, if you're listening to Pat Hayden, I say drop the interim status and give Orgeron a two-year contract right now. Given the injuries and the circumstances, Saturday's win was nothing short of miraculous and against uh, a well-coached Utah team. Oregon may not be a sexy hire, but the man knows football. He bleeds USC. His players love him and fight for him, and he has the heart of a lion. Give him two years and let him bring in the coordinators of his choice, and I believe he'll be grateful for the, uh, he'll be great for the program. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of people talking about 
Ed Orgeron right now. And if just so you know, we do a poll on the Peristyle, on the Peristyle, not the Peristyle podcast, on the Peristyle, the premium message board on uscfootball.com. And Ed Orgeron was winning uh, after USC beat Arizona. I think it was Kevin Sutherland winning. Then it became Ed Orgeron took the lead after beating Arizona. After the loss to uh, Notre Dame, we, we reset the poll and uh, Kevin Sumlin was leading again. I think Sumlin and Peterson right now are actually very close. Peterson from Boise State and Sumlin from Texas A&M. But those two uh, are still leading. They're, they're beating out Errol Jordan. We'll see if he if he makes any up, up any ground after uh, beating Utah. And it's interesting. And I, I you know, I've known Ed Orgeron for a long time. Great guy. I love him. Uh, you know, I've said a lot of good things about him on the show and, and written good things about him. I, I just having a hard time believing at this point, uh, without some kind of miraculous run, that he's going to be considered. I just get the feeling that Pat Hayden knows. You've had baseball being an issue. You've had basketball being an issue. And football, even if you make great hires in both of those sports, it doesn't make up for not having success in football. And I think there's going to be pressure from above. Um, I mean, I was at the game Saturday. We were right in the 50-yard line in the press box looking directly across at the high-profile donor seats that are right on the 50-yard line. And there were literally hundreds of them open and they started to fill up more uh, as the game wore on but when you're talking about you know donations and and money and people uh, giving back to the university if they're not happy and I'm not saying they wouldn't be happy with that Orgeron but that that's an issue and it's not just about are they happy right now you win a couple games and you're happy but if Pat Hayden doesn't feel like going down the road that he's a guy that could consistently beat the UCLA's and the Notre Dame's and uh, and bring you know the team back to double-digit wins, then I think he's probably going to want to go in a different direction. So I, I know that there's pressure there to get a home run higher. Are there home runs out there? That's a, it's hard to say. I mean, you can't really tell right now. There's a lot of really good candidates, I think, and you can see our, our coaching board uh, right now on uscfootball.com. We continue to update that, and I'm going to actually do an update a little bit later today on the hot board of, of what the you know some of these coaches, and I know – Dan mentioned uh, Tim DeRuiter. Uh, his Fresno State Bulldogs are, I believe, uh, 16th in the BCS right now or something like that, and uh, 7-0. and um, So, yeah, they've had some really close wins, one-point wins, overtime wins, crazy wins, and it, it was another one, but they keep winning. And uh, so I, I think he's kind of the – if there's an Andy Enfield out there, it might be him because they're making this run, and if they make it to a BCS game, he would be kind of like the, the hot name just because of what he did. He took, he took a team two years ago that was 4-9 and nine under Pat Hill, changed it to 9-4, and four, and now they're 7-0. and oh. They have a Heisman Trophy candidate at quarterback. Uh, so a lot of stuff, good stuff going on there. But um, he might not have enough coaching experience, in my opinion. Uh, not, I mean, just what I'm guessing Pat Hayden would say is, like, he's, a, he's kind of the darling right now. But for football, you might need more experience. It's only his second year as a head coach. So... Uh, that could be something that, that goes against a guy like uh, Tim DeRuiter. Um, Jerry wanted to know about Art Bryles. Would Art Bryles uh, succeed uh, at USC? And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, a lot of people – I've talked to one one buddy who, who said that USC would never lose a game if Art Bryles came in as a quarterback, I, as, a, as a, the coach. I don't necessarily believe – I definitely do not uh, believe that. But there's a lot of people that really want to see USC advance to – 
what the more modern offenses in college football are doing. And, you know, we've seen Oregon do it year in and year out. Uh, I mean, it's been pretty consistent. Uh, now, they'll play a tough team every once in a while. And you saw UCLA in the first half, you know, play them tough. And, and Stanford, you know, last year really play them tough for the whole game, which is tough to do. Uh, give, you know, kudos to UCLA for playing tough for a half. But the second half, they just got blown out. Um but it can be done, and we saw, you know, even the when they were in the national championship game against Auburn, um, Auburn did enough to, to slow them down. It was a very close game, you know, and Cam Newton is a special player. Uh, but, you know, they, they I think playing a really athletic team uh, that that has good discipline, you can, you can slow teams like that down. You know, so we haven't seen Baylor play a team like that this year. They're putting up 70 points on everybody. And uh, what people want to know is what would Art Browse do at a place like USC where you can get uh, the best athletes too. And I don't think you necessarily need the best athletes when you're at Oregon and, and, and Baylor and they're getting them. They're getting a lot of really good athletes. Uh, but I think you could put in a couple special athletes like a DeAnthony Thomas or a Lake Seastrunk, um, you know, at, at Oregon and Baylor uh, respectively and have them make a whole lot of plays and get a, a good, you know, a really good quarterback who can run and throw. Um, and you can make that offense work a lot of times and uh, I think you can certainly get even better skill positions at USC and and better linemen and things like that what you know would the system work out we haven't really seen it uh all that much so I'll be interesting to see if, if someone like that comes in but I do think Art Browse could be uh successful um at USC and Jerry also wanted to know about would it be accurate to say Josh Shaw is the most important player on the defense and I you know i you can make that argument for sure. We talked about a little bit in the last segment about what um, Josh Shaw brings. I mean, the fact that he transferred from Florida, what if he didn't? And, uh, man, I mean, he's played corner. He's played uh, safety. He's been the quarterback back there. Really, and you're talking about a position group on defense that's been the most challenged, I guess you could say, and so many different guys running in and out. I mean, you saw – Torrin Harris is, is healthy. He's out there. He's a healthy scratch right now. I mean, he was a starter. And, uh, you know, they, they feel that they do a better job with Josh Shaw there, cornerback. And I think overall the secondary played better. Now, I mentioned this to Dan. You're talking about playing a hobbled quarterback who had a hard you – know, he, he was running the ball effectively. But as far as throwing the ball, he just didn't look uh, the way he did before. And, you know, he hurt his hand. He had a bandage on his right hand. Um, so certainly that, that affected his performance. And this weekend will be a big test. How does this USC secondary look uh, Friday night against Oregon State? Does it look better because Josh Shaw's a corner and Demetrius Wright's playing better at safety and, and Sue L. Craven's back and stuff? I mean, they're, they're pretty thin, so they can't really get banged up. I'm curious to see how they look. Do they get torched again like we saw against ASU? I don't know. So, But I do think Josh Shaw is one of the most – uh, important players on the USC defense, if not the most important player, MVP so far. You could certainly argue uh, his versatility helps with that. Let's go to, we're going to go to a uh, voicemail question here. Here we go. Hello, Ryan Abraham. This is Otis. Um, I have a couple of a question about the scholarships. For um, instance, the NFL has 52 uh, players on the roster. They want to get 51. Well, well, we have 11 offense, 11 on defense, 11 back up, 11 on back on defense, and it sounds like we are playing, we only have like 22 guys in total 
on the team. And I was wondering what it is it's the media that's making a big deal out of it, or what the deal is why we can't play walk on the receiver, or why we can't play guys that like Oregon used to do. They would take guys that were bench guys and just play them for the heck of it. All right, um, there was some modulation there in that question they left on their computer. But, yeah, so uh, NFL rosters have 53 players. USC officially, we talked to the sports information director after the game, had 52 guys available, so less than an NFL roster. And it's different in college in the NFL. I mean, in the NFL, you have 53 every week. It doesn't matter. Now, they usually only have like seven offensive linemen. So two guys get hurt. You're playing the only offensive lineman you have on the roster. But the problem is, well, the good thing about the NFL is if those two guys are out for the year, you sign two others off the waiver wire. You, you pick them up, and you can't do that in college. So what the what's going on here with USC is they're, they're kind of at a limit of they're now below what an NFL team would carry on the roster with no ability – to add anyone else uh, as far as scholarships players go. So that means if you have to fill anyone in, it's going to be a walk-on if you even have those available. Um, so it's it's certainly an issue. It's a different thing. There's guys on the roster that are redshirting. Um, so they're they're not, technically not available. You could bring them, uh, cut off their redshirt and bring them in. Uh, there's a lot of guys that, you know, it started only just two out for the season. Now there's been uh, several more. And I think what you need to do is don't look at the over the overall number to me doesn't really mean a whole lot when they say, oh, there's 52 scholarship players available. Look at the two deep roster and what where are the holes? And I don't think it's necessarily an overall number thing that people kind of focus on the most. To me, it's about looking at that two deep, looking at uh, certain position groups where there have been a lot of injuries. Um, at running back, you know, USC's had some injuries, but they had enough bodies there, and it's really only one spot on the field that you're you're playing. So it's not too bad when there's, you know, it looked like there was four available on Saturday. You weren't sure about Trey Madden. He came in. Silas Red is back. Uh, you know, Justin Davis really was the only one that was was out for the year, and the other four guys uh, were available to play, and we got to see little glimpses of them. Um, so that's okay. But at receiver, when you weren't sure how many guys were going to be available. Uh, was it one? Was it two? Was it three? Was it four? How healthy were these guys? And you're putting two or three or four receivers on the field at the same time. Well, if you have less than what you can put on the field available, that means on the two deep roster, you're looking at, at walk-ons. And there was you know 10 walk-ons played. What does that mean? I mean, these are guys that are students that some of them preferred were they could have gone to a smaller school. I mean, there's there's not a lot of – I don't think there's a lot of walk-ons on USC right now that um, have scholarship offers. I know uh, you know Ryan Dillard, uh, the cornerback, did, had Division One offers. Uh, I can't think of anyone else on the top of my head. Well, uh, Abe Markowitz, who's, who's considered a walk-on now, he did. He had a scholarship and stuff before to USC. But you don't really see that as much um, – as far as what the walk-ons are doing, uh, have, you know, having that kind of experience. Now, these guys are you know, really good in high school. Uh, they're certainly not USC-level guys. They weren't recruited by USC. Um, that's a, you, you can't, if, if they were recruited, they couldn't be a walk-on. Um, so they're not going to be the level of athlete that you're looking at compared to what the guys that 
you know, if you recruited some bodies there, even if it was a two or three star kid, you're talking a higher level athlete than uh, than what's going to be there as far as a walk on goes. So, yeah, there's some bodies to fill in. They're just not going to be as good. Now, we you know, the the Chris Wilson thing is ridiculous. I mean, it's just crazy. He caught a pass. He started a tight end for USC. USC had zero healthy scholarship tight ends on the roster. None. So that's an issue. <laughs> Obviously, that's a big issue. Kevin Green moved over from defensive end, uh, but he wasn't the guy that they were they were putting in there. So I, I don't. I feel that you know he's playing defensive end. They don't. He doesn't know the position well enough, or something along those lines. We're going to ask him. Uh, why Kevin Green didn't get in there, but it was to the point where you, know, you had a walk-on offensive tackle, uh, Nathan Gertler, switching to number 82 and playing tight ends, essentially just as a blocker, an extra blocker in there. And then Chris Wilson, who was a pitcher for Wake Forest, uh, formerly was a quarterback, transferred in, and was we got him throwing the football around as a quarterback in the summer workouts leading into fall camp. Then they needed... Uh, Needed some bodies at tight end, so they move him over there, put on number 87, and he's playing tight end. And, you know, a year ago, you never would have pictured that he would have caught a pass as a starting tight end for USC. Like, there's how would that even be possible? But it did. It happened. So um, this is not something that's being made up by the media. There's, there's still a lot of great athletes on this team. Uh, you're not seeing uh, walk-ons have to play on defense. The, the numbers aren't there. Uh, that dire yet on offense they are and there's there's missing bodies that uh you you got crushed by injuries at receiver and uh, a position of that you felt was a position of strength going in has been uh sort of a problem for usc so it, it to me don't look at the overall number look at the individual positions but when there were seven guys uh in the week heading into utah seven walk-ons on the two deep roster that to me is an issue. And, you know, Dan Weber pointed that out at practice and, you know, we got to see a lot of walk-ons end up playing in the game. So it kind of verified, you know, what you're saying heading into it, but don't look at the 53 versus 52 or all that. Just look at the the two deep. And I think that's where you get a lot of your, your information. All right, let's go. Got a question from Earl in West LA. USC has been fortunate to have had nearly a decade of stability at the center position. Ryan Khalil, Followed by Khalid Holmes and now Marcus Martin. I've noticed Martin has really become the team leader in general, uh, most particularly a leader on the offensive line. Last two weeks, he seemed to even be more animated, calling out blocking assignments and pointing to the defenders before the ball is snapped. The offline, the O-line has been uh, mistake-prone this season, but Martin is really one of those who's called for penalties. What are your thoughts on Martin's play and leadership? Thanks, Earl and West LA. Couldn't agree. I, mean, I agree 100%. Couldn't agree more. Um, Marcus Martin uh, wasn't really going to be the center. And when we we saw him doing off-season workouts and kind of taking that over, which was good to see, and showing some of the younger guys what to do and uh, really did a lot of good things as far as being uh, the center. We thought, you know, we thought going the center going into fall camp. And uh, I think it was probably even in spring ball and stuff too. And it, it didn't seem like that's the way the coaches uh, wanted to go with it. And then, you know, they, they tried some different guys. They had uh, Max Turek playing center. And um, I think that's something that deeply affected uh, Marcus Martin. But th- that got cleaned up fairly quickly. And, and they found out that Marcus Martin should be the guy that's as the center. And there's one play in particular where not a lot of penalties in that game. But Andre Walker, I think, I believe it was Walker, got called for uh, 
false start or, or, or lining up uh, too far in the backfield, um, you know, illegal formation, something like that. And you could physically see from the, you know, I'm in the press box way high up there, how upset Marcus Martin was and thrown around and just, and it was, you could tell he got those guys to the point where this is not going to happen this game. He did not want to see uh, those kind of lapses in judgment or, or oversights occur in this game. So when one did happen, he made a big deal out of it. And I, I think the guys respect him. And the whole offensive line had to move around when Kevin Graff went down with the, the ankle injury. But, you know, Martin staying there at center, I, I think he's been a real key. Not Now, the offensive line has not been a bright spot, but I think it would be a lot worse without a guy like Mark Marcus Martin in there. And, and certainly I think, um, you know, he's been uh, not only a leader there, but just someone that's tried to keep the pieces together when when things were falling apart. It, it certainly uh, could have been worse. Uh, David and OC says, uh, I, will be, I was thinking why Clay, uh, I was thinking why Clay Helton is struggling on offense specifically in the second half. I think it's because he is at the field level. Don't most great offensive coordinators watch the game and make the calls from the top. Thanks, David. And I was actually on the Ed Orgeron conference call yesterday. I asked him that specific question because it was a close call. I thought Clay Helton would stay up in the press box and call plays from there. And, you know, they made a decision that they wanted him on the field so he could be near the quarterbacks. You got young quarterbacks and he's going to be close to them and kind of see what they're doing. And um, David, I kind of agree with you. I would rather see the offensive coordinator up in the, uh, up in the booth. And I think that it can be done, but I think that's more of an exception than the rule. And if you have an offense that's struggling at all, um, and you're trying to do something that's not always the norm, which is have the offensive coordinator be on the field, then to me, that's probably something you should change. And, uh, you know, I, I, I asked Edward John point blank, and he has no plans to uh, change that. He feels that, you know, with these young quarterbacks, uh, Clay Helton's doing, he said he's doing a great job. He's coming, you know, coming along with, with the guys. And, you know, you got to give credit to Helton or, or, or at least understand that, there are a lot of walk-ons being played. It's not like he's got a full deck that he's dealing from right now. Uh, but, you know, in my opinion, you know, my the layman's opinion, watching from afar or watching from the sidelines or whatever, I do think that they'd probably be better off putting Clay Helton up in the booth. That's not what Ed Orgeron feels. I don't think that's what uh, Clay Helton feels. So they're going to go on forward with that. But um, I, I agree with you, David. I, I'd like to see that. It just seems to... You know, scoring three points in the last, you know, the second half, the last two second halves is not a a, a recipe for success. If you're playing a team that can score, um, USC's, you know, it, Oregon State's probably going to score in the second half, and USC's going to need to score in the second half. We haven't seen that in the last couple of weeks. Uh, would him being up in the press box help? I mean, I think it would, but you know, obviously we don't know. So that's, I think that's certainly a concern uh, going forward. Um, we'll see, you know, we'll keep watching and see what happens. And, you know, they get some bodies back and, and the tight ends are healthy this week and they're able to play. Maybe that changes a lot of stuff, but, uh, yeah, again, to me, I'd like to see them up there in the, up there in the booth. Uh, we'll see, but it looks like going forward, that's not what they're going to do. All right. We've got a couple more coaching questions we're going to get to before we wrap things up. Let's see. We'll go to, uh, Tarek. He says, Ryan, I love you and Harvey Hyde, but I have to disagree that you think Sarkeesian is lane 2.0. Sarkeesian has done well with limited resources, being competitive, 
and his kids have fun. His coaching demeanor is nothing like Lane. He is passionate and excited. Look, uh, look what he did with uh, Keith Price. Could you imagine what he could do with Max Brown? And I'm not saying necessarily that Sark is Lane 2.0, but they're very close. Different coaches, certainly. Um, Sark started on fire and had a great win against Boise State. Well, they're 5-3 and three now and uh, got thumped <laughs> a couple of times. They got the exact same record as USC. He's, he's gotten them better. I mean, he took over an 0-12 program, but they're not really in the mix right now in the Pac-12 North, and they haven't been, and I don't see them being for a while. I mean, it's, it's Stanford and Oregon right now, and, you know, you see Oregon State pop in, and they're going to make noise. Or, um, I mean, but I, I'm not seeing Washington doing that. I mean, you got to beat some of those teams, and he's not really doing that. And it's not—they're different coaches, but they are—they were co-offensive coordinators at USC. You cannot ignore the fact how close they are, how tied they are, no matter how different their coaching styles are. And I think Sarkeesian's changed things a little bit, you know, more than than Lane did from when he was at USC. Uh, Sarkeesian, I think, strayed a little bit more uh, than what you saw Kiffin do. But my theory has always been, if you f- hire a guy and it's a disaster or it just doesn't work out and you got to fire him, and especially mid-season, you've got to do something different, you're not going to do something that's really close to what you got and you fired and got rid of. And like it or not, those two are very close. I mean, they're friends. They were, like I said, on the same staff. Different coaching styles, and it's sure, but they are too tied together. It's not necessarily Lane 2.0, but that's what a lot of people would look at it as. Is you're going kind of the same direction. Here's another former Pete Carroll assistant that is the young and up-and-coming head coach. You look at it, those general terms, they're very, very similar. So, yes, that's why he would be considered Lane 2.0, and that's why he will not be considered to be the next head coach at USC, in my opinion. Here's one from uh, Grace in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, John Gruden would be a great candidate for USC. He is Hollywood ready to deal with the big media market, recognizable big name in recruiting. He's the biggest factor to him is an offensive nastiness as a head coach. The Trojans have been bullied by defenses post Pete Carroll. Considering Max Brown, these spread candidates would Wash uh, wash him out with their scheme. Gruden is a great developer of pro-style quarterbacks and has deep coaching ties to bring in a quality staff. Gruden has the toughness uh, about him that is missing from the leadership, from a leadership standpoint. He's brought the Raiders back, had that Chucky scowl, and matched his team's toughness. Gruden is that guy. What do you think? Okay, I've talked about this many times, Grace, and uh, I'm not saying how good or or bad Gruden would be as a head coach at USC. But let me make this 100% clear. John Gruden is not going to be the head coach at USC. He is not. He is not going to be a college head coach. He is not. It's not going to happen. He has a cush job right now. He is not the most... You want to talk about personalities? Like, he is not a Pete Carroll. You talk about Chucky stuff and everything... There's some there's some issues there with John Gruden as far as as being a quote unquote likable person. He gets paid millions and millions of dollars to have fun up in the booth and talk about football. You're talking about going from that to a 12 month a year job where you got to worry about compliance and recruiting and kissing the butt of 
17-year-olds and likely for less money than what he's making now. Um, would he be an NFL head coach again someday? I think that's a more realistic possibility. I do not think it's a realistic possibility that he comes back to college. I've talked to a lot of people that feel the exact same way. So the, the Gruden fans, uh, I, I get it. Not saying he would succeed. I'm not saying he wouldn't succeed. But he is not coming. He will not come. He's never going to come. And it's never going to happen. So if hopefully that's clear, you can put the Gruden stuff away. Just forget it. Just tell the Ryan said he's never coming. And you can ask a lot of other people that, that kind of know what's going on, and I think they'll tell you the exact same thing. All right, let's uh, end on this one from Stephen Mitchell, class of uh, USA class of 1997. Uh, he has kind of a different take on the Ed Orgeron thing. I'm somewhat surprised to hear the number of people who feel Coach O should be, a serious, uh, and should be in serious contention for the head coaching job beyond this season. I love Coach O. I think he has done an admirable job uh, stepping into what is a tough situation to bring some fun and enthusiasm back to the Coliseum. But I'm not sure he's the, the best long-term solution for a head coach, even if they make a run at the end of the season. It seems to me the best scenario would be to get a great college head coach who has a history of producing multiple winning seasons at the collegiate level. Uh, one good season does not mean you're a great coach. After all, Link Kiffin had a 10-2 and season not too long ago, beating Notre Dame, Oregon, and UCLA. Look at how the following season turned out. Gene Chizik is another example, getting fired two seasons after winning a national championship. In my opinion, a no and no offense to Coach O, but it's just too risky to offer the job to someone after one nice season. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. And Steve, like I, I said before about Coach O, I love him. He's a great guy, but I do agree that he's probably a little too risky, that even if they make some crazy run at the end of the season, what does that mean? Um, you know, is there, is there risk going down the line a year from two, a year or two from now, you're going to have to do the same thing. Now we brought this up in the war room. One thing where it's going to be a tough situation next year with USC under the last year of the sanctions, one more recruiting class in February, and then one more season playing at 75 scholarships, which would be in 2014. We had heard from a couple of different sources that there's a possibility, depending on how things shape out, um, that Orgeron could be retained for one more year. And some kind of contract where they bring him on and maybe there's an option, you know, if they, they make a huge run in 2014 and play for a championship or something, then maybe he gets brought on. But more really as a stopgap to set things up, uh, you know, get through that last season. He knows the recruiting game well. Put USC in the best position to possibly win starting in 2014, starting with a new coach. Names like Chip Kelly after two years in the NFL or whatever. I mean, lots of crazy things could happen. We got so much negative feedback on that. And it's not like this was our ideas. I mean, these were people, you know, in the in the know that we talked to and that are around USC or part of USC or work at USC. And, and these are things that they said. So um seemed like a, you know, a possibility. Now, for that to happen, Orgeron does have to make a pretty good run. You can't. I don't think he could lose to Notre Dame, Stanford, and UCLA and ever have any dreams of coming back. Is that fair or not? No. Uh, but I think you can't you, – to me, 0-3 against the three big ones that were left on the schedule, Notre Dame, Stanford, and UCLA, would would be a non-start. I mean, just couldn't do it. Um, so I think he has to do some things. But if, if he does make a run and they win and 
Um, you know, they, they, if they're able to win in Corvallis this weekend, I think that would be a, a huge step uh, that maybe that's something that's considered. But, yeah, Steve, uh, to me, it's hard for me to picture Ed Orgeron being the coach at USC uh, next year, regardless of how this uh, season plays out. I do think they want to get a home run higher if it's a, you know, Peterson or Art Bryles or a Kevin Sumlin or someone like that. Um, I think they have to bring in somebody from the outside. Now, not to say that Orgeron couldn't be retained. I think that you know any coach that came in, it would be a you know, they should do they should retain Ed Orgeron unless he gets a an offer to coach you know to be a head coach uh, somewhere else. So he had his one shot at at Ole Miss, and I don't think a lot of things went fairly for him. It was a pretty big jump, I think, to go from offensive coordinator, uh, you know, at US, I mean, a defensive coordinator at USC, and to move on to be the head coach at Ole Miss in the SEC where it's a tough competitive market. And he, I think he recruited his butt off and did everything he could. And it was, it was hard. I mean, it was a a really hard situation. I don't think it was really fair to him. Um, Now he's got some more experience at USC, uh, two head coaching stints. And if he takes a, you know, if he wants to be a head coach for real and goes to, you know, it'll probably be a little lower level. Uh, Maybe it's a BCS conference. Maybe it's a, you know, one of the, non-qualifier, something like that. But I think it set him up well, the experience he has now and how good of a recruiter he is that if he's there for more than three years where you're in the SEC and they just want you to win right now, he could really build something. And, uh, you know, that'd be great to see him do something like that. But I kind of get the feeling that he'll stick around at USC and see, you know, depending on who's hired. But if I had to bet, uh, you know, a year from now, USC has a, a proven college head coach that they've hired, and Ed Orgeron would still be on the staff. That's uh, that's my take on the whole thing. All right, well, thanks very much for uh, tuning into the Parastyle Podcast. I know it was a little different this week, but we will do another one midweek with Coach Harvey Hyde. Probably Coach Harvey Hyde and uh, Shane Foley, I think, we will do this week. So it's an armchair quarterback podcast with an asterisk. And uh, we'll try to get Gerard back here and do a, another recruiting one as well. But So stay tuned for that. Yeah, definitely, if you have any questions for Coach Harvey Hyde or for Shane Foley, uh, email them in podcast at uscfootball.com, and we'll uh, see you on the next podcast. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.